My name is Matt. It's great to be with you. Um, we are in the middle of a series uh, called Promises, Promises. And uh, it's our third week in Advent. And the premise behind this series, behind this idea, is that God, and I'll use Art's direction here from last week, God in the past, in the Old Testament, to his people has made promises that were partially or fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then the promises that have come since Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ or because Jesus Christ has made to the future, we have promises that we're now waiting on, that we're anticipating. That's what we wait for here at Advent. So we have promises fulfilled and we have promises still to be anticipated and waited for. And we're in this in-between in this promises, promises time. Last week, um, Actually, two weeks ago, Steve began the series by talking about the promised seed, right? The, the son of Abraham. This was the, the one who was going to bring about righteousness by faith. And then last week, Art took the entire stage to walk us through the different covenants, but particularly he came to the son of David, right? The promised king. The one who came and inaugurated his kingdom with a crown of thorns in anticipation of the day where he would come back and reign in the kingdom forever and forever and forever, sitting on the throne of his father, David. And so today, we're going to do something that's a little bit maybe out of character, you would think, with some of the promises, and that is we're going to talk about the suffering servant, a promised suffering servant. Now, one of the things that Christmas does one of the things that takes place if you're kind of paying attention or if you engage in meditating on the, the reality of what we're really talking about, about the coming of God in the form of a man, become aware very quickly that there's this tangible gap between what's true about God, what's true about his promises, what's true about who he is, and what's true about us. And it gets uncomfortable if you really, really think about it because that gap becomes very obvious. And this is some of how Anglican priest uh, Tish Harrison Warren articulates this time of year. She says in her New York Times article, she says, For Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth. That light has come into darkness. And as the Gospel of John says, the darkness could not overcome it. But Advent bids us first to pause and to look with complete honesty at that darkness. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world that is still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief, and it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. What Tish is saying is that Advent is a season that invites us to look honestly at one unshakable reality of our human life, and that is suffering. And suffering according to the Bible, is either directly or indirectly connected to all suffering through sin. Sin brings about suffering, and we are either the victim of it or the perpetrator of it 
Well, no, actually, we're both the victim of it and the perpetrator of it. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. Now, this dual reality of being both victim and perpetrator, I don't think is ever more evident than during the times of of significant conflict, and, and maybe one of the most significant times of conflict, of course, is war. And, and personally, I'm, I'm a World War II aficionado. All that just means is that, like, I have books that I've read about World War II. I've watched all the documentaries, I'm pretty sure. It's possible that for Christmas a couple of few years ago, my family got me 10 hours of World War II documentaries. Yes. Um, they make fun of me about it, but it's fantastic. So I've read documentaries, I've watched the movies, and um, one of the particular moments that is maybe most, uh, most significant took place uh, in a book that was written, it's called uh, To End All Wars. It's also made into a movie. And it captures this extraordinary life of a, a gentleman by the name of Ernest Gordon. He was a, a British um, officer who was, tr- who was caught by the Japanese off the, uh, in, by, in the sea in the sea, by the sea, um, and he was brought to be a part of this group that was going to work to cut out of the jungle in the Burmese-Sinai Peninsula area a railroad. What the Japanese had done is they had conscripted prisoners of war from all over Asia, including a bunch of British soldiers that had been captured. One of the things that took place in this jungle was horrifying conditions. Most of the men were basically left with just loincloths, and they were sweltering under 120-degree heat almost every day. Insects all over them, biting. And as you can imagine, between the insects and the heat, dysentery, malaria, death was everywhere. It was commonplace. And if you didn't die because you got dysentery, or if you didn't die because you were exhausted by the heat, you died at the hand of one of the soldiers and their cruel treatment of, of many of the prisoners. 80,000 men died building that highway, 391 per mile. It was cruelty. It was suffering. What was interesting is for these British soldiers in particular, during most of the war, they lived in a camp or camps, and it was every man for himself. It was survival of the fittest. Prisoners fought in line for the food, trying to grab scraps from each other. Theft was commonplace in the barracks. Couldn't hold anything. Officers would hold on to their special rations as officers and wouldn't share them with anyone. The conditions got worse and worse. Men were living like animals. Ernest himself finds himself getting really, really sick for dysentery and typhoid. And and he finds himself laying in what they call the death house, waiting with the rest of the men in that room just to die. You see, what I, you see in that story, we see in, in his account, it's a gruesome account, is, is that we're both perpetrators and victims, right? These men didn't start this war. These British officers, these British soldiers, they, they weren't a part of the global system that pulled this off, but it began and it came to them, and they were suffering under it. They were victims of their, of their uh, Japanese captors in many, many ways, suffered greatly. They were also perpetrators. They were selfish and, and cruel and unkind to one another. They stole from one another. They, they were perpetrators of evil also. 
See, as victims of sin, we experience grief and sorrow. So we, 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 are, we suffer. As perpetrators of sin, through our selfishness, other people suffer. Other people have griefs. Other people have sorrow. And of course, we have sorrow too, even though we're probably not aware of it. That's the darkness. That's the darkness that Tish is talking about in her article. That's the darkness that we, during Advent, during Christmas time, come on, Matt, shouldn't it be light and sunny and there's darkness. And the light came into the darkness, but it came into darkness. And that darkness is not that different at all than the darkness that exists today everywhere you go and everywhere you'll head this afternoon. That's the darkness. And that's the darkness that Isaiah, in verse 6 of chapter 53, describes just as tightly as he can. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Everyone's rebelling. Everyone's doing what they want to do. All of us, that all is all to our own way. But 700 years before the birth of Jesus, through the prophet Isaiah, God promised to intervene amidst the suffering, amidst the darkness of the world. And so this morning, we're going to look at that movement of God in the darkness under three headings. The first is that God promised a suffering substitute. God promised a suffering substitute. Secondly, God promised a coming hope. God promises a coming hope. And lastly, God purposes a healing participation. God purposes a healing participation. First, God promises a suffering substitute. Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 53, which Dan just read for us, if you study the passage, you'll realize that over and over there's this description of substitution. Ten times in the passage we're told that Jesus who is the suffering servant, took up upon himself that which wasn't his, but ours. Ten different ways, ten different times. It's a principle that runs through that entire passage. So we see that he's a suffering substitute, that Jesus first suffered for us. Jesus suffered for us. It says in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. And verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. If you look at that verse 12, which, by the way, is what the verse that Jesus quotes on the last night of his life when he's in the upper room with his disciples in, in Luke chapter 22. He looks at these confused disciples, and he, he knows what's about to happen, and they don't really understand, and he declares to them, for I tell you, he says in verse, um, verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, he says. Listen, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. That's verse 12 of Isaiah 53. 
the very last night of his life, Jesus is looking at Isaiah 53 in his heart, and he's saying, this is about to happen to me. I'm about to be numbered with the transgressors. What does it mean to be numbered with? What does it mean to be identified with? It means to be treated like, treated as if. This is substitution language. It means to be treated. Jesus was treated as as though he had done all the things that we've done. Jesus was treated as though he had done all the things that we've done. What does this mean? What's the result? The result of Jesus being treated as though he had done all the things that we've done is shows up in verse 11 when he says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. That's the result. And what does this mean? It means that Jesus was treated by God as though he had done all the evil that we've done. Pause. Jesus was treated as though he had done all the evil that we've done. What evil have you done? What evil have you done this week? You may not call it evil. But how have you taken care of you at the expense of another? Have you heard the voice of God inviting you to be generous and you haven't chosen to listen? How have you hidden in secret or harbored thoughts of resentment? That might be a little bit difficult because it's hard to call evil, right? Because it's you and you're not evil. I mean, you know some evil people, but, but that's not what we're talking about. But what about that, that God treated Jesus as though he had done what all of those Japanese prisoners did? Japanese soldiers did to those prisoners. Some of the more heinous things that have maybe happened to you or happened in your family or that you heard about or that have happened to your spouse or to your friends. What about those? You see, Jesus was treated by God as though he had done that. Not just that, but all of those for all times. It's worse than you think. And it's way more than we think. What does it mean that Jesus was treated as though he had done all the evil that we've done and all have done? And then when we believe in him, something happens. Substitution. We are treated as though we had done all the perfect, holy good that he has done. That he is. That's true for you. That's true for anyone who will put their faith, regardless of what they've done. That's substitution. John Stott went as far as, who's a preacher and theologian, great writer, we went as far as to say that the principle, he says, I think the single principle of the whole Bible can be summed up in one word, substitution. You see, sin is you and me substituting ourselves for God, taking charge of our own life, which is his purview, and saying, this is my life, I will do as I please. So, so we substitute ourselves for God, saying, I know all things, I know what's good, I know what's evil, I know what's right. We substitute ourselves for him. That's sin. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. 
and putting on, our, on himself where we should be, putting himself on the cross where we should be. God promised a suffering substitute, a, a servant, one who would suffer for us. But there's more. One who wouldn't just suffer for us, but one who would suffer with us. Jesus suffers with, suffered with us. Let me ask you, I don't know what your week's been like, what your month, what your life's been like. But do you feel of no account or inconsequential, maybe invisible? Have you this week? Have you been dismissed? Are you, are you forgettable? You're not worth desiring or maybe pursuing or You've been shamed, rejected. I want you to look at what Isaiah says will be true about Jesus. Verse 2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, which is the language of shame, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Loved ones, Jesus was of no account. Jesus was seen as being of no interest, of no desire, dismissible and invisible, forgettable, not worth desiring to pursue. He came to his own, John says, and his own did not receive him. He was rejected and he was put to shame. Jesus identifies with us in our suffering and we've all suffered some form of those things and he's with us. But there's more. He didn't just experience sorrow. It says he's a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He's familiar with sorrow and grief. But he wasn't just familiar with the experience of sorrow because of the acquaintance of his life with the grief upon himself. There's more than that. Verse 4, listen to what verse 4 says. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The fact that that happened must have been the condemnation of God, not the pleasure of God. He borne our griefs, the Son of God who, and I think we forget this because, um, because we think of Jesus um, rightly so as the incarnate Christ, but this is the one who for eternity past has been delighting and joy with the Father and the Spirit for all time's sake. There is no sorrow and there is no grief going on in the Trinity. It's joy and delight and praise, glory. And this Jesus substituted himself, and he took upon himself our griefs, our sorrows. Not just his own, not just the ones he experienced in life, but he took your griefs and sorrows. What have you been grieving and sorrowing? When Jesus 
walked up the hill to Calvary, he was carrying not just the anticipation of the sins of the world, but also your griefs and your sorrows. He is with you in your suffering. He put it upon himself. There is no suffering. There is no pain. There is no grief. There is no sorrow which you have experienced that he has not borne with you. That's what Isaiah is saying. With you. You may feel alone. You are not alone. He's acquainted with grief. He knows it firsthand, and he knows yours on him, on his way to the cross. A substitution. Jesus suffers for us, and he also suffered for us. Jesus suffers for you, and he suffers with you. God promised a substitute, a suffering substitute, and that substitute came on Christmas morning. And that suffering substitute died on Good Friday and was raised on Easter morning. And because of that, we don't just have a Savior who suffered for us and with us, but God promises a coming hope. God promises a coming hope. Verse 10 kind of culminates all the first nine verses when it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to do it. And here there's a shift in the passage. There's a future hope. There's a, there's a coming vision that emerges. Listen. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He will, uh, I'm sorry, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Beginning of verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Crushed, yes. Pierced, yes. Put to death, yes. But there's a future vision. There's a future hope. There's more. There's a coming hope. There's offspring, the family of people who belong to Jesus. There's prolonged days. There's this future reality of the blessing to come. There's it, all things are prospering in his hands. There's success at the hands of what Christ has done. He sees and is satisfied. From the cross, Jesus looks into the future. He sees something and he is satisfied. What does he see? Isaiah gives us this general picture of, of Jesus, the one who, who has died and who is dying, being able simultaneously as he's finishing that work to look and see. Hebrews will say it's for the joy set before him that he goes there because he could see the joy set before him. That's a general picture in Isaiah, but, but the Apostle John gives us a far cleaner, clearer picture as he receives the revelation from the Lord in Revelation 21, verse 1 to 5. What is it that Jesus saw and was satisfied? Then I saw, said John, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, family. And God himself will be with them. No more separation as their God. What happens to suffering, grief, sorrows? Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Write down this promise because these words, you're going to need to trust them because they are true. There's a coming hope. Loved ones, one of the clearest declarations that God has for us as we wait, as we anticipate a hope to come, are the words, no more. No more. Close your eyes for a second. Would you just receive these and let God speak to you as, as I say these over your heart? Hear from the Lord. No more fear. No more lonely drives home. No more chronic headaches. No more barren wombs and no more miscarriages. No more living without a sense of purpose. No more kids in foster care. No more joblessness. No more divorce. No more corrupt systems or governments. No more joint pains or flu. No more diabetes or cancer. No more rejection or subtle slights. No more envy or jealousy. No more hunger, no more, no more racism, no more striving to be liked or included, no more nightmares or terrors, no more futility in work, no more disabilities in body or in mind, no more temptation, no more addiction, no more cycles of shame, no more anxiety about children, no more words that cut down, no more silence that alienates, no more poverty, no more orphans, no more widows, no more sleepless nights of worry, no more disdain for your body and hopelessness to long for beauty, no more anger, no more yelling, no more violence, no more abuse, no more unmet desires. No more standing over caskets. No more tears. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all 
things new. Amen? This is the promise of what's coming. This is what's coming at his coming. It's a coming hope. It's coming because he suffered. And one day, all suffering will be swallowed up. Never to occur again. This is how we endure sorrow. This is how we endure grief. This is how we endure suffering in our life. We look back with humility and, and gratitude to the one who suffered for us and suffered with us. And we look forward with anticipation, with expectancy, and with hope that there will be suffering no more. That's how we endure today and tomorrow and in the winter days to come for you. So we have the suffering substitute and we have a coming hope. And lastly, we have God purposes a healed participation. A healed participation. We were suffering under the weight of sin and death and Jesus came and alleviated it by taking it upon himself. He substituted and now, as his followers, we do like him. We raise up the suffering, the struggle, the, the crushing down by coming and bearing up under it for each other, for that which is broken and that which is poor and that which isn't in the world. We participate with him because we've received from him. We know suffering and we know the one who has been not only for us, but with us. My buddy Tim Keller tweeted this back in September. He said, all real love is a substitutionary sacrifice. All real love is a substitutionary sacrifice. Every time you love for real, you're substituting for someone else for their good, for their raising up, so that in case they might be crushed, you might be able be, to be the one who comes underneath, that you might be pierced for them or crushed for them, that maybe their chastisement comes upon you. This is an ironic Sunday to be talking about sub substitutes. About 8 o'clock this morning, Joel, uh, our worship director and leader, called and said, hey, listen, my daughter, two months old, uh, I need to rush her, need to take her to the emergency room. She's been throwing up, and apparently she's doing okay relatively right now, but um, I'm going to need to go. So he walked off the stage here during practice and called Jonathan. And Jonathan showed up as a substitute. Because that's what we do for one another, right? And I don't think Jonathan came for himself. I don't even know where you are, Jonathan, but he can come for himself. He came for you. And you know what was at stake for Jonathan when he came? It wasn't free. When you haven't practiced any of the music and you don't know any of the song and you didn't practice with the band, and these are Christmas songs, which we do at Christmas, well, there's all kinds of potential, right? For looking like you don't know what you're doing, for being your reputation, maybe being like, oof, Jonathan. But he took the risk, Right? He substituted for Joel. He took his place for your sake and for my sake. That's what we do for one another. We bear up under. We take the place of at cost to ourselves. Now, he didn't tell me to say this. I'm telling you. You should know. That's what we do for one another. 
It's what we do for the kingdom because we know the king who has done this for us. All real love is substitutionary sacrifice. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about in Mere Christianity. This is what he says. He says, the principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours anyway. And this is precisely what happened. Turn as Gordon entered the prison camp. Ernest Gordon was in um, pretty terrible shape, waiting to die. And something happened that became known as the miracle on the River Kwai. One event in particular shook the culture of the prisoners, and everything was different after that day. You see, at the end of every workday, the Japanese soldiers would, um, would count the tools. At the end of one particular workday, they counted the tools, and one shovel was missing. And so the guard came through and put everyone in a line and asked time and time again, who stole the shovel? No one said anything. And so he said, at the top of his voice, then I'll die, I'll die. And he raised his rifle in the face of the first man in the first line. And suddenly, instantly, an enlisted man stepped out of rank, walked to the front, stood at attention and said, I did it. Well, the fury of the Japanese guard immediately was unleashed upon him. He struck him, punched him, kicked him. But this, this enlisted man ended up standing back up and back at attention, which only infuriated the guard all the more. And he took the butt of his gun and he hit him in the head and he just crumbled to the ground. And he kept kicking him and kicking him and kicking him, even though he was unconscious by that point. When he was done kicking him and striking him, the rest of his companions picked him up off the ground unconscious and they drug him back to the camp. Later that evening, another count was made. And what they discovered is that no shovel was missing. Everything changed from that day on in that camp. You see, one man had chosen to substitute himself for everybody else. Who was the first man in line? He doesn't know. But he substituted himself for him. And he had done nothing wrong. In this case, no one had. But all might die. Ernest says that the prisoners remembered the verse, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And the attitude in the camp began to shift fundamentally. Like thieving basically disappeared from the barracks. The, the graves that used to be just bodies taken and thrown out for the beasts and the animals to take were now being given proper burials, and a cross was put on each one of them. The, some of, the, some of the, uh, the prisoners started taking their watches, which they had hidden, and they were trading them with the guards to be able to get medicine to take care of the other prisoners. They stopped looking for themselves and started looking at one another and at caring for one another. And and Nurse Gordon is one of those who, by the sacrifice of other prisoners, was nursed back to health over time and eventually was healed and well. 
And what he accounts for is he said, he says, not only was, was I healed physically, and not only was there physical healing across the whole camp, he said, but for the rest of our lives, there was a spiritual healing. Church was built. Praise and worship, prayer for one another took place. Because one man substituted for the others. This is how it works. One man substituted himself for you. And now his invitation to you is do it for each other. Do, do it for the world. You see, I know suffering, and I know that you know suffering, and, and you're suffering. I have it. I've got it. And so now you can go out into the world, and you can lean under, and you can pick up. And All real love is substitutionary sacrifice. Do you want to love your kids, your friends, the people that aren't your friends but think they're your friends? Substitutionary sacrifice. You want, to love your you want to love your spouse? You want to love your parents? Substitutionary sacrifice. There's no other way. We go under and we lift up. Now, if you're here and you're still not sure about, about Jesus, about Christianity, I, I feel like Isaiah has a question for you. It's from the first verse of the passage. He says, who has believed what he has not heard from us? I'm sorry, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the answer I would say is, is to you. Th this morning, what, what I've been sharing with you and with everybody here is, is the fundamental reality of the substitutionary work of the God of the universe for you that God himself came for you, to die for you, to be pierced for you, to suffer for you and with you, and to give you hope. That's the good news of the gospel. This is what the arm of the Lord has done, and he's declaring it to you today. And my prayer has been and is this morning that if if you will believe, then you can receive and know this kind of peace, the kind of peace that Isaiah speaks of in verse 5. He says, upon him, upon Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with other people. That's what Christ purchased for you. And at Christmas, peace on earth and goodwill to men and women. Peace to you is what Christ offers. Brothers, sisters, friends, peace is what Christ offers to your suffering, to your sorrow, to your griefs, that you may offer yourself to a sorrowing, grieving, and suffering world. And that is glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've invited us to be with you, that you've made a way by coming for us. Jesus, suffering servant on our behalf, you have shown us the way. You stood up and said, I did it when you didn't do it. We all did it. And it came on you. The blows came on you. 
And so we praise you. We thank you. We, we praise your name. And we anticipate. We can't wait. We long for your return. We want to hear no more. And until that day, Lord, we will wait for you. We will endure with you. And we will trust you. We will do so to the praise and glory of your name, which you have revealed in Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection. So come, Lord Jesus, we wait for you. Thank you for being our substitute. We pray this in Christ. Amen. This meal, this table, is the great, it's the great reminder of the substitution that took place for you. It's the reminder that someone had to step forward for you. Friends, someone had to step forward for you. And it's also the anticipation of the fact that all will be made well, that no more, that no more will be true one day, and that we're going to see face to face, we're going to eat a meal with Jesus, and we will know that all that suffering and sorrow has passed. And so this meal is both a remembering and the an anticipation. And so as you come forward, receive it as both. You belong to Jesus. This is your meal, a great meal for you to praise and worship the glory of God the Father. Pray this. Amen. Come forward. Receive the elements.